Good morning. How are you? Oh, you all look so great. Oh, man. Um, I want to welcome you if you're new. Uh, Like Chad said, my name is Ryan Grable, and uh, we're available after service. And if you happen to leave and no one in our extraordinarily friendly church doesn't talk to you, you come talk to me and let me know, and I'll get after everybody, because I know we have the kindest, most loving, want to connect church. And so um, we hope you feel welcome. We hope you feel like this is a place for you. Um, We are in the middle of our, not in the middle, wow. Some of you got literally depressed for a second. We are almost done with our series of acts. This is the final leg of the race. Uh, Next week, we will close out the book of Acts. We have spent almost a year going through this book. So if you've missed anything, if you're new and you're like, what? Um, Just go back, give yourself a year's worth of listening, and you will catch right up. Uh, I... uh, I have something that's very valuable to me, something that has a certain value to me. No one else appreciates it like I do. I love this thing, and it is my 2008 Honda Odyssey minivan. I, I am someone who drives a minivan, okay? I'm going to put it all right out there. I'm someone who loves my minivan, and who, yeah, amen, that's right. Thank you, Skyler. He's a minivan owner as well, and a newly minivan owner. And it was funny because, uh, you know, uh, the minivan doesn't get the respect I think it deserves. Okay, I'm going to put that out there right now. Uh, When I pick my kids up from school, they duck and hide. They do not sit in the front seat. I, listen, I treat my minivan like a pickup truck. There's no seats in the back of my minivan. It is flat, it's a flatbed truck with a roof on the top. It's basically got a cab on the top. So I, they get in and they lie on the floor and they're like, drive, drive, drive. And I'm like, what, what is wrong? Then you should be proud of this minivan. And it, I get a lot of shame from the kids. I get a lot of looks when I get out of the minivan. They're like, oh, you drive a, you drive a minivan. I'm like, yeah, so, yeah. So, like, it's a, it's a thing. And uh, anytime something goes just a little wrong with the minivan, my family is very quick to be like, you got to sell that minivan, Dad. It's time to drive a different car. And, and there are times when I feel like I, I want to get rid of the minivan. But it's so reliable. It's, it's brought, if you've been to dirt, you know I camp in my minivan. I have driven that minivan off-road with dirt bikes in a trailer and got lost in the desert with this minivan. I have driven it across the country more times than, than, than it should have done. I've been up mountains in snow. I drove that thing when they closed down Big Bear Mountain, took back roads, and I got down that mountain while everybody else is in ditches. I love this minivan. It's reliable. You know, we love reliable things. You know what I'm saying? And you don't know how much you love it until you realize when, like, something is, becomes unreliable. I think about cars. You probably have a car. You just are like, man, it just keeps going. Or I have a motorcycle that just keeps going. Or service that's provided to you uh, that all of a sudden, if it changes, you realize how important the reliability was. Food quality. 
I mean, I, I was just talking to someone that they had a hard time with me hating on uh, In-N-Out the other day. And, uh, but the thing about In-N-Out, though, is the quality is always the same, right? It doesn't change. Those fries will always be noodle fries. Every time, <laughs> sorry, you had it coming. Every time you get them. But the, the, when something is reliable, you know what to expect. You can count on it. Your cell phone. The moment your cell phone becomes unreliable, you probably have an emotional breakdown, do you not? Right? It, it is something that even with people, maybe even people especially, we need reliability. We need to be able to rely on people. And I, and I think this, when I was, uh, a while back I was looking at these, you know, what, what it takes to actually have a successful team. Or what it takes to have a, a work environment that is thriving. And they say that there's three R's that, that, that really create the best work environment and the best teams. And the first one is reliability. Second is to uh, actually you know, uh, uh, produce, well, produce isn't it, the three R's, results, wow. Res <laughs> Two R's and a P, okay? Like, <laughs> Produce results. And then the last R is relationships. And these will create an incredible team. I look at the body of Christ similarly. Like, how reliable are we? How reliable are we to uh, what God calls us to do? Like my car, I, I love it. I'll go to it because it is reliable. I have a question for you you should think about, maybe even write down. How reliable are we in trusting and obeying and following the Holy Spirit's guidance? How reliable are we in that? Let's pray, let's pray on that, and then we'll get into the message. God, we ask that today as we go through Acts chapter 27 and part of 28, that you just reveal to us what is being prompted through this word. And God, that I ask that when we walk out today, we will have a, a, maybe a deeper thought about what it means to be relied upon. And can we be God's person for his use? And God, I just ask that uh, every one of us here, God, that just deeply, you know, goes over that question and really takes it seriously because, God, we live in a world that needs to know you. We live in a world that needs to hear the gospel, and we live in a world that needs reliable believers to be in it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I titled this message Open, and I think it's the perfect way to just think about it in one word is am I open to what God is going to do. The main thought that we should be thinking about on top of that is being open to the Spirit's leading. How is the Holy Spirit leading you? And what is he leading you to? And how do we respond to what he is doing? You know, um, I've heard people say this, like, no, 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 no. I, I pray for the lost. I pray for the lost all the time. And that is good. Because it's continually placing these people on your heart. But I also say, that's great, but are you willing to pay for the lost? There's a big difference in praying for the lost and paying for the lost. And meaning that you will pay, in some ways, a social consequence by reaching the lost. You might pay in time for reaching the lost or investment in the lost. 
But it's great to pray for the lost, and we should, but are we willing to pay for the lost? My main thought here that I would love us to have in, in, this, in this area being open is this, is that we, when we trust in the Spirit, we become more trusted in our call. So if we're reliable, to become reliable, we have to trust and obey and follow the Spirit's leading, and God will give you more right? Mark 16, 10, one who is faithful in very little will be faithful with very much. I think in a lot of ways, we always want the much, but we have to be faithful with the very little. In this story today, we see very clearly Paul is faithful with very little, but he's, because he's also, and he can be trusted with faithful with very much. And, and I think this is true when you're thinking about, man, how do I follow the Spirit's leading? Let me give you just a little thought, maybe a, a little kind of phrase you can say to yourself. If God leads you to it, he will lead you through it. I think we're very afraid of that, of like, okay, God, you're leading me to this person, and I, I'm not like Paul, or I'm not like some of these other believers I know. I don't have the words to say, or I don't know exactly how to communicate at the at the place and context of where they're at, but if you believe that he, he can lead you to it, you must, must believe he can lead you through that. Now, if you look back at Acts, like, look at Paul, and this is why he's one of the most fascinating people in the Bible outside of Christ, because his journey leads us through, if you've been through the whole series, you really can see it. He is in many different cultures, many different contexts. To some people, he's philosophizing. So to some people, he's arguing scripture and, and making the case for Christ. In other scripture, like last week, he's talking to the powerful elites and he's sharing his testimony. He doesn't know exactly what to say. And you, from last week, you should know, he's asking people while he's in prison, if you can do one thing, pray that when I open my mouth, it's the words that I need to say and that they say, I say them boldly. If God will lead you to the person, distrust that he will lead you through that situation. Paul modeled it all throughout the book of Acts for us, and he's going to do it again today. Um, let me, uh, let me uh, take a deep breath before I bring you really quickly through Acts chapter 27. We don't have to read Acts chapter 27. There's nothing deeply profound in most of it where we would go, oh, theologically, we're going to look at this. We're not going to do that. There, Acts chapter 20, 27 and Acts chapter 28, at least through verse 10, are written, I think we can take it a lot of different ways when you read scripture. You can go, oh, wow, God, Paul is, has faith in the middle of a storm. We can preach a whole message about that. But when you look at the theme of what's building, you're looking at a person who is available to who's around them and relentless on preaching the gospel and whatever comes his way. And that's what we're going to see when we see Acts chapter 7, 28. I'll summarize most of Acts chapter 27. Paul just finished witnessing to the most powerful and the most elite in, in Judea. God promised him at his calling that he would be before kings, right? And he literally preaches the gospel, shares his testimony on who Christ is in him and why he has changed. But he's still going to Rome to face trial. So they load him up. They put him on a very large Roman ship. When we think of biblical ships, we kind of think of little boats. Like Rome was a superpower. These were barges. 
So put a picture of this boat up. This is the, probably the Roman boat that he was on, that type. This boat is 180 feet long. It holds two tons, or sorry, 20 tons of, of cargo. It's most likely coming from Egypt with their grain resources going up along the coast. It stopped at Caesarea. And so they would stop all along the way to pick up people, drop off people and supplies. So this boat can hold 400 people. And so naturally they're like, well, you're going to Rome. We need this prisoner to go to Rome. There's other prisoners going to Rome. We're going to send Paul on this boat. On the boat that Paul is on, there is 276 people aboard, Luke writes. They are hugging the coastline all the way as they go along. And so they'll stop, and, then, and they'll get off, they'll reload. I, I, I want to say that because the, the centurion who's in charge of Paul, who has no reason to even trust or like Paul, somehow... He has taken a liking to Paul. He sees something in Paul. Paul is modeling something that obviously gets his attention. He even lets Paul go off the boat at one of the stops to go visit with other believers in the area and then comes back on the boat. That the unheard of would never, ever happen because he would take great risk if Paul actually ran away. And, and all along the way, they're going hundreds of miles. Put up this map if you could really quick. This is the route of which they're taking that red line where they end up going. And this is not like us where we're like, oh, this is a nice little cruise, Alaskan cruise. No, these are brutal, horrible, difficult trips. It wasn't easy to be someone who traveled by sea like this. Boats got lost all the time. It was, uh, there could be sickness breaks out. There could be all kinds of issues. There was piracy, and Rome had tried to crack down on it, but constantly boats being raided and lost at sea and people being killed. But what I love about this journey is we start to see Luke lets us see it, a very close, intimate view of what it looks like to be transported like this in the ancient world. Actually, uh, this section of Acts is actually historically renowned because they don't have ancient writings that are this detailed on actually what ancient ship travel was like. And so this is actually even studied by non-theologians, right? But Paul, at one point, because he's traveled so much, he knows the seas. He's been evangelizing everywhere they're pushing it too close to winter. And this giant barge with probably all of its confidence and, 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 and its need to get the grain to Rome. The owner of the boat and the pilot of the boat are saying, we got to keep going to Rome. And Paul's like, it's winter. Like when it happens to be winter here, this is extraordinarily dangerous and this is how ships are lost. And so they're back and forth. And Paul is saying, advising Julius, the guy who's in charge. And he's saying, hey, listen, you shouldn't do it. And Julius is like, I'm going to listen to these other guys. This was a tremendous mistake. Have you ever been there where you're advising somebody and you know what is right, but they, continue, they go on to do it and you're like, okay, it's on you. But this is kind of the part of the problem is that Paul is on the boat too. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, it's probably pretty like, hey, you shouldn't do it. Well, there's something called the Northeaster, and it was referred to, and then eventually they call, they call it a typhoon that would happen. We would call them hurricanes. And this is starting to shape up in the area, and they end up getting pulled out to sea. This becomes 
a massive problem. Most sailors at that time getting caught in like a hurricane like that in a boat like this would say, we're going to die, right? So they're in this situation. Now remember back, Paul has had this promise that Jesus said, you're going to go to Rome. And I think as believers, one of the things that we can see here is that why does Paul still continue to have this resolve? He, he believes something. He holds that in the middle of a storm. You're not on a boat in the middle of a hurricane, you know, but you are in hurricanes in your own life. We all have been in those. And like Paul, we have to hold to something bigger than the circumstances. Paul has been told something. And he trusts his God who will deliver on that. He even, I think, writes in Philippians, God will not start something that he will not finish. We have to hold to those things like Paul. But something's interesting because they're paying attention because Paul has this calm in the middle of the storm and everyone else is freaking out. When I was studying for the uh, Christmas series, John Wesley, his, I was teaching one of the songs that his brother Charles Wesley wrote, but I just read, happened to read just a lot about John Wesley too. And John Wesley was coming over to America to evangelize the Americas, these colonies, and he was on this boat with some Lutherans. Now, John Wesley didn't really hold the theological stance that there is grace by faith alone, meaning that his salvation was secure. And we often will struggle with this, like, oh, God, I, I, you, you must have turned your back on me, God. Look, look, I haven't done enough for you, or I, or I happen to sin this day, and if I die, maybe I won't go to heaven. So John Wesley held this view. He's on this boat on his way over with these Lutherans who, who believed and embraced that grace by faith alone. And what he noticed and he wrote about was they were in a very similar storm on the way over on the Atlantic. And they thought they were going to all be lost. The crew members are losing it. John Wesley is losing it. And he sees these Lutherans with their families, and they're all singing hymns, and they're very calm. And he's like, how can you be this way? And he's like, we trust God, and we know that if this is it, then we'll be with our Lord. And he's like, how could you know that? This begins John Wesley's revelation. It opened the door. That Paul has this type of thing here. And, you know, it's interesting because Julius, the leader, begins to see something that Paul has been this whole time that we've seen throughout Acts. Julius is starting to see that Paul is God's man. He's, he's God's person. You know, Paul will say yes. Paul will trust. He is open, right? He is open to the Spirit's leading. He trusts God. And that is very unique. Have you ever come across somebody when everything's falling apart and they seem to be calm and you're like, why are you so calm? Shouldn't you be freaking out? And then you try to get them to freak out and they're like, just calm down. Like, you know what I mean? There's something unusual when you're encountering that. Paul's encountering this now. Julius definitely is. But, he, but Paul spends this time advising, encouraging, you know, and also warning them, right? Julius and the crew, after 14 days in this horrific storm, they're just demoralized. Now listen what happens in Acts chapter 27, 21. Since, since they have been without food for a long time, Paul stood up and said to them, men, you should have been listening to me. Okay, so this is a little petty, okay? <laughs> I mean, I, probably not. Paul's like, listen, I've been telling you. Don't, don't, don't necessarily be, I told you so when people make the bad decisions. But he says, you should have been listening to me the whole time and not set sail for Crete. 
and incur this injury and loss, meaning that you've made some bad decisions, right? Here's where we're at now, right? But listen to what verse 22 says. Yet, now I urge you to take heart, for there there will be no loss of life among you. This is quite a promise from the abyss, right? Paul is confident, but only of the ship. Now, that's not super encouraging. Like, hey, you're all going to live with this ship. She's gone, right? For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, listen to this line. God has granted you all uh, all those who sail with you, meaning that they're safe, Paul, because I have a plan for you. That's pretty, that's pretty big. Verse 25, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that he will do, he will be, that, that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. We're going to lose the ship, but God will not lose one of you. You're just going to have to listen to me what I say. I I love this. This is this confidence we see Paul has had throughout all of his journeys, and here he is. And you would think, like, I mean, have you ever been there where you're like, God, you promised me this, but why a hurricane? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, how how, how have you brought me this far? I'm finally going to get there, and and now a hurricane and, uh, but I believe that these are divine moments and God is positioned Paul definitely into being a place of influence and they're listening to him. Some of these other sailors tried to bail and they tried to cut the lifeboats free. This is a very Titanic moment. They're trying to get in the lifeboats to bail on everybody. And Paul's like, do not let them leave in the lifeboats, cut the lifeboats free. And you know, what's interesting they do it. They have recognized Paul is someone of faith. And when things are falling apart all around you, and people see that there's someone of faith who will stand and stand for them and stands for something, they will look to that person. And they're looking to Paul. And Julius does it. Paul leads them in their last meal. He says, let's eat up because we're going to need our strength you know, when the boat goes down. <laughs> they crash they see and just as paul said they see an island in the distance but the sailors don't recognize it because they're on a different part of the island normally if they saw the port of malta they would have recognized it was a it was a prominent trading port but they didn't they ended up somewhere in a desolate area of it and it runs ground on a reef and they're stuck there and the boat is being broken apart by the waves and then All of a sudden, they got to do something. In this moment, a Roman soldier knows that those who he is guarding, if they get away, the Roman soldier could be put to death. And so they say, let's just kill all the prisoners at least so we can say that they didn't get free, we get to live. But in this moment, so much has changed. Think about Julius from the time he captures Paul or takes Paul onto the boat as just a low-life prisoner to this point now where Julius vouches for Paul and Julius puts his own life on the line and says, we're not going to kill the prisoners because he wanted to spare Paul. That's how much 
Paul has influenced him in the middle of this by just being God's man. And then at the end of, the, at the end of it, they all get out of the boat. The boat breaks apart. Julius, a great leader, says those who can swim, swim first. And those who can't swim, grab a piece of the boat and float in. And all 276 people make it to shore. Aren't they glad they were with Paul? I like this chapter for a lot of reasons. It, there's a lot of elements we can pull out of it, but I think there's a couple takeaways for me, and maybe I can share them with you. One is this, is terrible circumstances brought on by poor decisions made way for God's man to stand for them. That's what we can see. Terrible circumstances that we know people who are our loved ones, who make horrible decisions. Do you know what I'm talking about? The loved ones that you're just like, I love you, right? Those ones. They make terrible decisions. They go against good advice. But when all is lost, it opens a doorway for a person of God who will stand in conviction to be influential in their life. This story isn't about Paul making it to Rome necessarily so much. It's the story about Paul being able to be a witness to these people. It would be ridiculous to think otherwise because that's all Acts is, is the work of the Spirit and the witness of the people. And here's another opportunity we can see it, that God, this opportunity provided, even though it was their bad decision, Paul didn't abandon them and say, you know what, I got this promise. And so if you all want to abandon in the lifeboats, if everybody wants to just go for themselves, I know I'm promised to go to Rome. Paul doesn't do that. He takes responsibility. And he says, no, you got to come with me. And so I think it's important to have that. And I think a question that will be on the screen here is, how do we show up in moments like this in people's lives? I'm not going to lie. It is a struggle when you have constantly trying to help somebody and they continually sabotage their life by making bad decisions. And in the moments, what do you want to do? Who do you want to be? Someone who just says, you know what? That's on you. Or are we going to be like Paul where it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. I told you so, yet I'm going to stand here with you. And you do not have to fear. These are the moments that open the doorways for the gospel to be shared in people's lives. These are the moments that we get to show people a little closer glimpse into what faith looks like. And I wrote this down. We can't control people's bad, bad choices. You're 100% right. But we can be like Paul when those decisions that they've made leave them hopeless. We can choose not to just look to ourselves. We can choose not to just write them off. Paul, Paul took responsibility. Many times, people wanted to go their own way, and Paul continued to encourage them to trust in what God has said. He didn't have to do that. He took responsibility for those people. The second takeaway, I think, from chapter 27 is those people around Paul were saved because of his promise from Jesus. Now, maybe this is a jump for me to do this scripturally, but let's go ahead and just take the scenario that God has perfectly positioned someone of faith in a boat of faithless people who are scared and lost. And Paul is someone who stands and trusts and has faith and has a message of truth that it can change their entire life that can calm the storm within while it's happening outward. And, and I think this might be something we can maybe pour into our own life, is can we be like Paul, 
Or we may be positioned in people's lives where we can stand like Paul. You know what I mean? I, I, I want you to think about this question. Do we see ourselves like Paul on the boat with the lost and the hopeless and the hurting around us? Do we have the kind of confidence it's like, stay, you know, you're my people. I'm going to look out for you. I'm responsible for you. I know God saves them, but God's brought, brought you into their life. He's brought you into their boat. And are we positioned? Do we see ourselves like Paul taking that responsibility like that? I, I love those two thoughts about that because then we see that, man, like, who are we in these situations? Do we abandon people or do we take responsibility for people? And do we see ourselves like Paul? That God has put these people in your boat. And if we could take the next leap forward, it would be they're safe. And the hope is that they will be safe or saved because they're in your boat. These are the people who are close to you in your life. They're in your boat. Can we see that, hey, listen, my responsibility is to walk in faith and bring these people to salvation, or at least lead them there. Okay, we'll wrap up with Acts 28, 1 through 11, and a, and a few more takeaways here. I love Acts uh, 28. It's a, it, it, what it does, I think is great, is because we had the intellectual elite sermon over here, right? right? We had the king, and we had the influential and the powerful. And then we've got Caesar over here, who's the most powerful, the most influential, right? But then we have this story here that is unlike any other journey Paul's been on and any other people group that Paul has spoken to. And this is such a testimony to who God is and why the progression of Paul wasn't to start small and work his way only to the big and important people because it can feel like, oh, he just wants to get to Caesar because he's the most important. This is what I love about God. This is what he does. Acts 28 verse 1, or verse 1 and we'll go through 11. After we were brought safely through... They've crash-landed on this island. They don't know where they're at. We learn that the island was called Malta. The native people, the native people here means barbarians, right? These people are not of their culture. They don't speak their language. They probably can understand in a way because they have been occupied by Rome. But these people are uncivilized, if you will. They're barbarians. Shows, they showed us unusual kindness and I think in some ways, God is preparing these people's hearts or has been for being receptive for the gospel. They were not hostile. They were receptive people. And for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. Verse 3, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out. Uh, because of the heat and was fastened to his hand. And I love this part. When the natives saw, uh, when the people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, oh, no doubt this man's a murderer. Meaning this is like instant karma for Paul, right? Though he had escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. So they have a a, a belief system. I don't know totally what their belief system was. They had they had a mix of different empires that ruled them. So I don't know ultimately what the natives embraced as their belief, but they believed in a higher power. 
Though he had escaped from the sea, right, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up. Now, I don't know what's happening. Are they like, should we tell him? He gonna die? Like I, I don't even. I, I, sometimes you have to put yourself in scripture. And, and like, what does the scene look like? And uh, or waiting for him to suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited long enough, they saw no misfortune come to him. They changed their minds. This is a very important part of what happens next. They changed their minds. They saw something greater than their gods. They changed their mind, and they said he was a god. So something was bigger and more powerful, and how they, how they saw the divine outshined their god. It says, Now in the neighborhood of that place were the lands belonging to a chief man of the island named Publius. It says, Who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. No doubt Julius made this connection for Paul. It happened that the father of Publius laid sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed. Putting his hands on him, he healed him. And this means this word in the Greek was an instantaneous healing, so it was miraculous. And when, they had, uh, when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases all came and were cured, and they had honor, honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put aboard everything that we needed. And verse 11 says that they had been there for three months. Paul is there, and he's ministering to these people, and he's praying for the sick, and he's preaching the gospel, no doubt, because I don't even know, think Luke has to even say it. This is what Paul does. This is why Paul is operating miraculously in this way through the Spirit to preach the gospel to a people who have no theological context, who don't argue about the Torah, and who, who have no idea who Jesus is. So he shows up in this miraculous way through the Spirit. Here's my takeaways as we get to, ready to wrap up. Takeaway number one is this, God speaks in languages and ways people understand. You know, think about when you came to faith. And God sent someone that spoke a language in a way that communicated to you that you understood. Is that, is that not the truth? Think about how you have spoken using your story to, to, to witness to someone else. You're speaking in a language in a way that people understand. And when you're being led by the Spirit, I think God knows what to do and how to communicate to certain people. And that's why Paul said, I need you to pray that the Spirit moves through my actions or my words to communicate the gospel. Because when we read stuff like this, we're like a deadly snake and, and, and then healings. And, and all, right? some people can say those things, but man, this is Mark chapter 16, verse 15 through 20. This is a, a, a scripture that, that most scholars believe was either put in later. We don't know exactly, but these are essentially a combination of Jesus's words. So let me just put it that way. It says, go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons, right? Because this is authority. They will speak in new tongues, right? What we saw in the, in, in the beginning of Acts. They will pick up serpents. Here we go with their deadly hands. Only instance in the Bible just happened. 
And they will drink deadly poison and it will not hurt them. No instance in the Bible where that had happened. But this is what's being stated. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Paul is operating in this way. It's really interesting because these, these are, you know, I'm not going to drink deadly poison in front of you all and be like, well, let's just see if God's here, right? You know, I won't handle deadly snakes, although there's some, some churches in the Appalachians that would, pastors would handle deadly snakes. And guess what? They didn't make it. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't work out for them. They're trying to, to show that this, they're, they're trying to do this scripture as it is to, then today. But listen to me. Listen to me. I think this is important to realize this because when you read these things, you go, wow, that's pretty fantastic. In an uncanonized time, right, they didn't have the whole of scripture to, to, to grasp the faith. And, 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 and people who have no theological context God is moving in these ways. The Spirit is moving in these ways. And notice how we haven't seen this type of movement for quite a while in Acts. And then in this context, we see this type of movement, right? And, and I think it's important because it validates Paul's preaching that's coming to these people. B.B. Warfield said this, these gifts were part of the credentials of the apostles as the authoritative agents of God in founding the church. The, the, the whole point is not about those miraculous things. The whole point of those miraculous things validate the gospel, which is the most miraculous thing that can happen to a human being because you rise from the dead. Does that make sense? You literally come alive. You have a life in heaven, an inheritance, a heavenly father, a connection that has never been has now there. You have eternity in front of you. The greatest miracle that ever, ever happens is that these, in these contexts, the spirit manifests. Paul did not make these happen. The spirit did in order to witness to these people. Paul, a lot of people will, will have this debate. And I don't know, I don't really lean in one way or the other. I'm just going to tell you this when it comes to reading scriptures like this, like, do these things still happen? Can I handle deadly snakes? Or right. I, I, I don't have that debate. There are those who are called, they're called secessionalists, right? They, they believe that once the apostles died, the scripture was canonized. We, do, we don't see the gifts or miracles like that anymore. And there are those who are continualists, which say that we operate exactly the same way now today right? I don't put myself in either one of those camps. I don't know where you put yourself. Here's what I believe. I believe this to be very true. God decides how lost people see him through us when we're spirit-led. He decides. Am I open to however God decides to do that? Absolutely. In whatever context he puts me in. But I'm just following the Spirit's lead. And so, God, however you want me to witness to people, however you want to manifest yourself, I'll do it. And God, if, if, if in a context that is like theologically rich, that's where I'll be. In a context that has no theology and they're considered barbarians, if you will, like they call them, then God will do things that we don't understand to validate the true miracle that is being preached. I don't want to ever put a limit on the spirit. I think that's been a long debate. And I would challenge you to just say, hey, I'm open, God, however you want to use me. Because when we put those parameters on and we frame it in such a way, maybe we're framing ourselves out of being the most effective witness we could possibly be. And you don't have to amen me on that. You can just think about it. 
But will you be open, the question I think you should ask is, uh, will you be open to how the Spirit calls you to minister? Sometimes God places somebody on your heart. And do we respond to that and how we minister to them? Sometimes God might call you to pray for somebody who's not well. And do we just say, if that's what God's leading me to, I will go pray in faith for someone who's not well, like Paul did. And maybe God's using those opportunities to validate that there is power behind the resurrection. I don't know, but I think that's one of the things when we read scripture like this, we can really contemplate. The, the last thing here, and we'll begin to close, is where theology doesn't have words. I'll just tell you this, serving opens doorways to hearts. When someone doesn't have a theological base where there's no words you could communicate to them, serving opens hearts. This is what Paul did for three months. He served these people. It looks like they served him, but it's quite the opposite. Paul gave them what they truly needed. They gave Paul what he temporarily needed. But when you don't know what to say, service is always the best thing you can do. Matthew 26, Jesus gives his disciples the very last, almost like action they should do. And when you're going to give your last actions to someone, the last will, your wishes is that they would then wash each other's feet like he did and become the last so they can become the first to serve one another. The Bible says that, that people will know the love you have for Christ by the love you show one another. And so if you are in a place where you don't know exactly what to do or exactly what to say, service, serving, how do I look to put them before me, will always communicate or open doorways to be able to share the gospel because people feel and hear that. Are you, the question would be on the screen, are you looking to serve or be served? This is what I love about Paul. Everywhere he went, he was looking to serve. He was looking to serve. He was looking to serve. He was not looking to be served. And I love that. I love it that this story happens right here, sandwiched in between two of these great, what we would say is, oh, the most important people to evangelize. He's right here with the people who uh, were theologically the most distant, philosophically the most distant. And some people would say uncivilized. And God places them right here. This is how God works. We're just here to be who we need to be in any context, in any situation. And this happens just before he goes to Caesar. I think there, uh, this story definitely personifies, and Paul's story personifies, somebody who is faithful with little will be faithful with much, right? He is God's man. And, and, and I, I want to just leave you with this last uh, image here. This is on the city of, or on the island of Malta. And Malta, from the moment Paul landed on that island, Malta took an unbelievable change in its direction in faith. And if you read the history of Malta, they have been basically being conquered and ruled by every great dynasty before even Rome and crushed as a people. And their faith shows up. And it's interesting because with their faith in Christ, they, they are no longer crushed. Even though they're, con they're conquered and taken over, they're not crushed. 
their faith continued on. Malta is one of the smallest countries in the world and has the largest population of believers in the world. They were not crushed. They, were, they received something from Paul that was greater than any empire, these people. And they, resurrected, they erected that statue to Paul. As you sail in, you will see him welcoming them there. And they pride themselves that they're a, a, a people of hospitality and kindness. And that's what they do. Can you guys bow your heads? I want to ask you these questions. Are you God's person? Am I his person? Are you open? And are you ready when God is choosing to use you for his work? I don't know exactly how the spirit works. And if I think if I try to tell you, you should tell me that, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm in the wrong because you should. I know that the Spirit leads. And I don't think that, that, uh, that there were those days and now we're in these days. I think we are all constantly in new context. And the more we are in touch with what the Spirit is leading us in order to deliver the greatest miracle to someone's life, the whole reason Christ came and died on the cross, we have to be open to how the Spirit leads us. We should do more than pray. And you have to be willing to pay the cost. It might be awkward or it might be weird, but listen, Paul is a great example that he never, ever counted all the costs for it. He just led, he was led by the Spirit, and he did what he was told to do. God is trying to reach this world, and he will reach this world, but he has enlisted us as believers to be on board. And so if anything, these, this chapter in chapter 28, let it be an encouragement to you. Let it, be, let it be an inspiration to you. Let it be a challenge to you that there are multiple ways to reach people, but we must be in step with the Spirit and we must be open to how He leads us. Or we'll just write it off and say, maybe someone else will get them. Or I don't know enough. Or uh, I, I don't know, I don't read the Bible enough. Or I'm not exactly sure about this. Or how could I, couldn't somebody else, where Paul is just open. Let's be uh, inspired by that example. God, we love you and we thank you, God. As we wind down this long journey of Acts, I ask God that, um, that you just, through this series, God, of moving us in a way that inspires us, that encourages us, that, that, that brings our faith and in, in our, in our trust in you to a much higher level. And God, that we know that there's a plan and a purpose for each one of us. We are not spectators, God. We are actively involved in what you are doing. We are not going to sit idly by as you are advancing your kingdom. We want to be a part of that advancement. And God, help us be what the scripture says, be in step with the spirit for where the spirit is leading us and that we follow in the footsteps of Jesus and we go to the uncomfortable places, we go to the difficult people and we stand to be God's person in the midst of that. Waiting and listening to what the spirit leads us to do. Help us God to not put boundaries on you. You are the God of the universe 
You've created everything with a word. You rose Christ from the dead. You've brought miracles in this world, God. God, there's nothing you can't do in the moment to reach the lost. So let us be open to that, God. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me this last song?